welcome to Decolonizing Sexuality, where we have intellectual conversations that change the way we think about sexuality and question if that may have an impact on how we think about everything else. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, I'm really, really happy to be back on. You know, the fact that it's once a month makes me happy because I have enough space to be able to do other things in my life because I really enjoy doing a myriad of other things. You know, one th- one thing in itself is not my life. <laughs> so that's always great. But at the same time, you know, I think I think a month gives me enough time to be like, oh, wow, I miss you all, you know, that kind of thing. So I definitely have a treat for you today. Um, I don't want to go too far into what we'll be talking about today. I think I want to go pretty much right into it because this is a really interesting concept that has been inspired by some of my other podcast episodes with my wonderful and insightful guests so far. There's only one announcement that I would love for you all to be aware of. A couple of days ago, a podcast from Embracing Intensity came out, and I was fortunate to be a part of that podcast. And so I would love if you could go over to the Embracing Intensity community and check that out. The Embracing Intensity community is specifically for highly creative, highly sensitive, and neurodiverse individuals. So if that sounds like you, I would 100% go check out the Embracing Intensity community. It has been a wonderful community for me to be a part of, and I have had the opportunity to give back to that community through the sharing of wisdom. So I'm grateful for that. I'll go ahead and leave that link in the podcast description below so you can go check that out. The theme of what I talked about was on intuitive flow, and it talks about some of my concepts of effort transcendence and some of the things I haven't even talked about on here. I think it's a really great extension compared to what I talk about even on this podcast. Just to give you a little gist of what I talked about, I said something similar to this. Don't start with structure if you haven't even seen what completely unbridled XYZ looks like. Look at the completely unbridled version of XYZ first and then create balance from there. The whole point is not even to create structure, but to create balance. So if you start with the complete freedom of XYZ and then look at what structure it's asking to have, I would say that's a much better natural foundation to build upon. And see, notice how that can apply holistically to every single aspect of your life. All right, so we're going to go right into this. This is just a solo podcast. I was driving, so be aware that there were some driving sounds, um, some extra sounds in there. If you're hard of hearing, you might need to turn that up just a bit. There's a little bit of extra sound in the background, so just be aware of that. All right, enjoy. Today I want to talk about unconscious sex work. I'm, I'm coined a term called unconscious sex work. And the reason I'm calling it that is because a lot of us understand what conscious sex work is. A lot of us understand what, you know, is typically called sex work, is typically seen as sex work. Most people are aware of what that is. But I think a lot of people are not aware of what unconscious sex work is and can look like. And so I'm kind of theorizing on 
what unconscious sex work can look like. It's not just one thing, right? It's not something that can be easily reductionized. Unconscious sex work, to me, if I can maybe put a definition to it, unconscious sex work to me and from my observations have been a preoccupation with appeasing the patriarchal gaze or, you know, what people are calling the male gaze, what feminists are calling the male gaze. Um, but I like to call it the, pa the patriarchal gaze because it's not just about the sexual gaze, right? It's, it's about appeasing the patriarchy in many ways. Yes, a lot of that is um, sexually charged, right? But I think that unconscious sex work can also irrigate out into um, emotional labor, which is not necessarily sexual, right? Emotional labor in um, the typical workplace, especially in the West, anything that is, I would say really anything that is done underground that is contributing to the subjective experience of others but is not being, is not actually being given back to the, the contributor themselves. So it's not gendered at all because anybody can do emotional labor. It's just that in history, we've seen women do this more, right? So any form of emotional labor, from, from my observation, what I have seen, is this not get touched on that a lot of women are talking about not contributing to the male gaze but then turn around and are still obsessed with their appearance and still have these body image issues that they are not dealing with and they're stuck with a lot of these issues that they're just not questioning um, and I think, and I'm noticing that in a lot of women's personal development um, material, a lot of what's still happening is about contributing to the appearance. And it's just, it's really, really weird. It's very, it's very contradictory in my opinion. So remember in our episode, I believe it was episode five. Yeah, it was episode five. When I was talking to Gabrielle Griffith, I was talking about being inspired by what she talked about with regards to sex work, because once I got a deeper understanding of, you know, what it was like to be a sex worker, that really inspired me to, to think about, okay, what are ways that a lot of us are doing this kind of stuff unconsciously and not getting compensated for it. And that's why I think that it's a problem. The real problem is that, you know, like conscious sex work, great, because you're conscious about it, right? For me, my, my real problem with things is when you are not doing something consciously. Because when you are not doing something consciously, that means, number one, you're not getting compensated for it right? So this is, this is a lot of energy going into a lot of different things and you're not even getting compensated for this. Or perhaps you are getting compensated for it, but, 
but at the cost, at the cost of your sanity, at the cost of your insecurities, at the cost of, you know, I just, at the cost of trying to, I mean, I think I would say at the cost of, um, a lack of depth in your life, a cost of, you know, which I consider, which I consider a cost of your sanity. Because if you are not, if you are encouraged to constantly be in a place where depth is no longer important, that the superficial is the only thing that is really important to you, then that can, that can really ripple out in ways that we can't predict. That ripples out in ways that, um, actually are taking out, they're not compensating back, they're taking out and making many people very insecure. So I think that it's really important to be able to see what this is. I'm not saying that people should not be doing whatever they're doing, it's just that when it's unconscious, it becomes dangerous. So if you feel that that's something that you have to do, then you are no different than our ancestors who felt like they had to do sex work in order to feed their families. And there was nothing wrong with that. Why? Because it's conscious. But we are not empowered when we are not conscious for anything. And if you don't if you don't think you know what conscious sex work looks like, you can go back to episode five and listen to Gabrielle Griffith's really insightful, a really insightful and I say a, a deeper perspective behind the healing work that can happen in those underground spaces. And so you can say, you know, if we're looking at unconscious sex work and some of the, uh, some of the, um, examples that I've already given and descriptions that I've already given, you may already say like, oh, okay, well, this is, you know, this is the media's fault, blah, 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 right? Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm also saying that, but for those who are not paying attention, the media employs people into automatic sex work. And so what I'm saying is don't do something just because you were driven by the media to do it. Because that is the point. That is the point that becomes dangerous. If you are unconsciously driven by the media to do anything that is dangerous, and that is the heart, that is at the very heart of what I am speaking about today. So for those who are, you know, do you see how contradictory it can be to be an avid supporter of women's rights and women's equality and then turn around and be unconsciously driven by the media to be an avid appeaser of the patriarchal gaze and to call it empowerment. That's the stuff. That's... mm And I know a lot of a lot of people. This is the part where I start pissing people off. I piss a lot of women off when I say that. And I don't care. <laughs> I literally don't give a shit. I don't give a shit because I know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> 
but do not call it empowerment to turn around and be like, oh, well, I am being unconsciously driven by the media in order to contribute to the patriarchal gaze. No, no, that's not going to cut it. Not with me. Because this plays right into codependency, once again. The whole self-sacrifice, unconscious specifically, unconscious self-sacrifice to something toxic in order to survive. And there's another aspect to it too. And this is the reason why I called this episode today, like, to, the reason why I called this episode Unconscious Sex Work and Transactional Relationships. Because what happens with, and you know, this actually touches on what Millie Boella said in our last episode, in our Pride episode. But what she says is very much about understanding that these transactional relationships are normalized. That selling the body to the highest bidder is becoming significantly more normalized. I mean, even to the point of where you can't even go on a dating app good. Like, you can't even go on a dating app. And, like, I'm not even on dating apps, you know? Like, I feel really content with who I'm seeing, and so I'm not really out there doing that kind of stuff. But when I talk to men and women and non-binary individuals who are on dating apps I mean god I mean it just sounds it sounds like it's only becoming worse and worse that everything is starting to become more and more transactional and you know we already knew this shit was happening way I mean you know I mean since the beginning of time sex work is the oldest job I mean the oldest job out there right so I mean we know this if we go back in history but, I mean, it's becoming so much more blatant in such a way, this is the part here, where you are almost gaslit and looked at as if, you know, and crazy may looked at as if you are crazy if you want a relationship that is based on something that is not transactional. And yes, I understand the biological aspect of you know, selling the body for money, you know, like, I do understand some of that is biological, some of it, but it's getting so, I mean, it's just getting so blown out of proportion, and like, even if we're not just talking about sex and money, right, if we're just boiling it down to, like, just the purely transactional aspect, you know, you give me A, and I give you B, And it's becoming much more emotionless. I think it's really important to understand that these transactional relationships are particularly unconscious. And for you to turn around and call that love, that's the part. That's the part that makes me go, that's weird that's just it's just weird to me because I'm like how can you how can you call that love when it's very obviously transactional 
and, and very obviously unconsciously transactional. And another thing too that I see is that when you have, I'm just going to change it to A and B here because I think that it's important to sometimes just see it that way so that people can just understand the logic of what's going on because there are so many automatic associations that come with a lot of words that sometimes just stripping it away is it, it can be helpful and so I'm like when you have you know we'll, we'll put them in teams we'll put them in team A and team B okay when you've got team A reading books to try to keep team B in their lives but then team B is not reading books to do that team B is not reading team B is not giving a shit about whether or not team A is staying in their life when you've got team A so afraid to lose team B but then team B is typically you know from the collective level is typically not afraid to lose team A not at that not at the level that team A is afraid to lose team B to the point of where they would be reading books and would be you know um, you know studying and all this other stuff to try to keep team B in their lives you know there's such a disconnect there's such a disconnect and I'm just like no no I just at this point I'm just like the buck stops here it's not okay we are putting up with narcissism if you are reading books on how to keep your partner in your life and if your partner is not reading books in order to do that shit mm, no that's already that's already a disconnect I'm gonna tell you that right now there's a there is an inherent disconnect and you can ask me oh how do you fix that I mean it's different for everybody but I do believe that it comes from it comes from a culture of narcissism it comes from it comes from a culture of privilege where whoever team B is regardless of whatever associations whatever words or whatever you know like it doesn't matter because it's going to look different those combinations and you know those permutations are going to look very different depending on who you are where you what your background is uh, your points of privilege etc but I will say that typically if we're looking at team B team B is the more privileged typically and that's where the power dynamic is right so team B is more likely to get away with narcissistic dynamics and so what I'm saying is if you're if you're studying and all this shit to to keep team B in your life mm -mm. nope what that means is that team B has so much privilege that they are allowed to get away with not contributing as much as you are contributing to that relationship and what do we call that we call that codependent relationships which are narcissistic dynamics why 
because you are the one who is sacrificing yourself. If you are team A, you are sacrificing yourself to be in a one-sided relational dynamic. And the fact is, is that these kinds of transactional relational dynamics are normalized. And that's the part that I want people to understand today. That is unconscious sex work at its core. It's not about what you do. It's not even the what. It's how you do it and if you're doing it interdependently. It's not even about what you're doing because sometimes what you're doing can look codependent. But it's not about the what. It's about the how. So I think that it's more it's more about the what than the who and it's more about the how than the what. But if we're looking at what matters, you know, like the who is kind of more so at the lower level and then the what becomes more at the higher level and then the how is, is at the, the how is at a very important level. You have to, you have to take care of all three because if you are, if you're just looking at the how and you're not looking at the who then that can also be rough. So that's what I'm saying. These are these all these things are interdependent upon each other. So that's why I say there there really is no hierarchy here. So I I am in a relational dynamic right now where I'm helping this person integrate their inner child in different ways, but in a way that is adequately compensated because you would think that helping a person integrate their inner child would be a crap ton of labor, right? A lot of people would go, oh, that's a lot of labor, right? But, and this kind of feeds into my effort transcendence stuff, when it does not register as labor because you are getting adequately compensated and you love to do that and you love the person, then it actually just doesn't even feel like labor. And it's conscious. As long as it's not actually taking from your resources, at the end of the day, if it's giving to your energetic resources, if it's giving to your, like all of your resources, right? If it's giving back in such a way that really feels interdependent, it feels fulfilling it feels like after like after every single interaction we have both of our hearts are full and that is what matters that is an effort transcendent relational dynamic and that's what we're looking for We're looking for effort transcendent relational dynamics. We're not looking for transactional relational dynamics. So I give, I give that example to you as a model to show what you should not be putting up with. Here's another thing. This is something that actually really helped a friend of mine when we were talking about transactional relationships, because I'll tell you right now, if you are autistic and any other form of neurodiverse, Like I have an autistic friend who I was talking to 
And when I talked about transactional relationships, that was something that they had a really hard time seeing. I noticed that a lot of autistic friends and clients have a really hard time seeing transactional relationships when they happen, even when they're smack dab in the middle of them. Why? Because autistic people don't do transactional things. It's not typical for an autistic person to do transactional things. It's just not it's just not the way that autistic people operate. Given my research and given my experiences, what I found particularly interesting was that what I had told my friend was if you're steady writing about a relational dynamic that you are in or that you are a part of, if you spend more time writing about it than actually just spending time with that relational dynamic, then nine times out of 10, that shit is transactional. Nine times out of shit, I mean, nine times out of, nine times out of shit, nine times out of 10, that shit is, it, not only is it transactional, it's one-sided, that other person is sig- probably significantly more privileged than you are in different ways. And the way that I'm defining privilege here might be a little bit different than what a lot of people are seeing it as. Um, The way that I am specifically defining privilege now in this talk is to what degree can this individual get away with narcissism? So this person could be black, you know, I mean, really, this person, this person could be black as the ace of spades living in the living in the United States. You know, this person could be, I mean, this person could be socioeconomically disadvantaged. This person could be, I mean, that's what I'm talking about when I, when I'm, ta- when I'm covering team B. It doesn't really matter. I'm looking at narcissistic privilege here. I'm not looking at, um, I'm not looking at, you know, race, gender, that kind of stuff. That's not even what I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at narcissistic privilege because remember what I talked about last time at the end of my last episode, I talked about the fact that the narcissistic contagion is in every culture. It's everywhere. So you can't, you can't turn around and play the victim and be like, oh, well, I'm socioeconomically disadvantaged and blah, blah, blah. No, no, that's not going to work. That's not going to work because the narcissistic contagion is everywhere. And so it's important for us to be able to hold ourselves accountable to ridding ourselves of the narcissistic contagion. If I were you, I would even look up covert narcissism. Specifically, I'll I'll put a link uh, in the description to kind of um, you know to kind of look at that because let me tell you, most of the clients who have been coming to me have been people who are trying to rid themselves of narcissistic dynamics because what they're seeing is that narcissistic dynamics are at the very heart of the at the very heart of the problems in their life. And most of the time, the heart of, I mean, I haven't, 
I literally haven't met a single person whose problems in their life have not been caused by narcissistic dynamics. And there's a reason why I don't say narcissistic folks or narcissistic individuals. There's a reason I say that because that's the whole idea with the contagion, right? The whole aspect of the contagion doesn't mean you have to be the start of it. It just means that you need to be a host. And in order to be a host, you have to be able to be an appropriate receptor to whatever that contagion is. And so in order to achieve immunity from something, that means that that means that you are no longer a receptor of the bullshit. And the only way that you can really get rid of this narcissistic contagion is to become conscious about it through understanding a lot of these aspects that I'm talking about today. You know, there's a reason why I don't watch the media because the media is literally designed to make you feel not enough in any imaginable aspect so that you will buy more shit. And to be honest, that kind of emotional and psychological manipulation wouldn't even be as bad, in my opinion, if it didn't also include increasing codependency, right? You know, because, it, you know, it includes a decline in mental health. It includes a susceptibility to tolerating abusive and transactional relationships. You know, we use the word codependency here on this podcast almost every single episode because I consider it one of the main drivers of colonization, especially in the West. And I'm defining codependency as essentially self-sacrifice to the point of severely neglecting self-care. You know, it's like a habit of forgoing your own needs and desires for other people. Do you see how this can, do you see how this can play into unconscious sex work? And when I talk about getting rid of the narcissistic contagion, I mean in yourself as well, right? So this understanding of, you know, being obsessed with one's appearance, um, you know, all these things. You might say, oh, well, I'm not a narcissist or whatever, right? Okay, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you can't be a host for the contagion. So the narcissistic traits like preoccupation with somebody, you know, preoccupation with, with one's appearance or with one's image or a uh, need for external validation in a way that becomes a little more obsessive than just being accepted in a community that will accept you for who you are. A lot of times that kind of stuff stands in the way between you and the freedom that you actually want in life. And that's what I'm seeing with a lot of clients is that a lot of stress, a lot of stress boils down to this. I think we often think that we have to focus so much on the external, like how we're going to change the world and et cetera, but it starts with us. This is why my practice is called Simply By Being, because it's founded on the principles that if I start by changing my own damn self, then my actions are going to start speaking for themselves and cause other people to desire to change themselves for the better. Then they will become inspirations for others. So this is a ripple effect. We severely underestimate the ripple effect in our sphere of influence. If we can change ourselves, then we can change our sphere of influence in a way that is not even it's I mean it's barely even advice based 
I would say, that it's in a way where everybody's keeping their boundaries. Because when a person changes themselves, their sphere of influence can look at them and be like, you know, they can take what they want and they can leave the rest. It's not preachy, right? It's not like, oh, well, this is what you have to do and this is how you have to do it. No, not necessarily. But what I aim to do is not to give you advice. What I aim to do on this podcast is to show you how I live my life, to show you how I've changed my own self, or to show you how I just already lived. Because to be honest with you, I had actually, this is really funny, I had actually been unconsciously running away from unconscious sex work. And I didn't realize that. Let me give you an example of how I unconsciously was always running away from unconscious sex work or, or from, the, from the chances of unconscious sex work. There were a lot of times where I would just be like, there's just something so off about going on TikTok and going on Instagram and, you know, showing my body in such a way where people will actually see the depth of my work and that I will be able to achieve compensation for that. There was something very off about it and I could not even put my finger on it. So that's what I mean by the fact that I was unconsciously running away from unconscious sex work. If you look back to the episode of sex work equals healing work, I believe that's episode five, that was the moment that my eyes opened about what I had been seeing and what I had been so deeply uncomfortable with. And so I'm grateful to become conscious enough about what I had already not been doing (laughs) to be able to effectively communicate to others what this is. So now you might have the question, well, how do I get out of unconscious sex work besides not watching the media or besides doing all this other stuff, besides, you know, not doing as much social media and just media in general, right? Um, How do I do that? That feels like, I mean, if anything, that feels more like a sacrifice for where I am at right now. If that's you, then that's super valid. That's extremely valid. There are other ways. I think that there are other ways to do this. And I think that we can look at ways that a lot of us are so busily looking for validation in our communities, chasing what many people see as success, seeking cultural approval and seeking prestigious cultural approval. Believe me, I was on that route. I consider that unconscious sex work that I was doing. I consider that under the umbrella of unconscious sex work because when you are whoring yourself out for stress and all you're getting back is stress, mm -mm, nope, I just... That I will say that that was something that I was participating in. And that's the part that becomes very ungendered. Think about how many people, even if you're not there, you know, not out there, you know, unconsciously selling your body to the highest bidder and all this other stuff. Even if you're not doing that, a lot of the seeking, a lot of uh, seeking prestigious cultural approval and seeking social and institutional power, that only gives back. Like, if that works for you, then cool. But if it's only giving you stress back, then it's not worth it. It's codependency. But a lot of people, I understand, you know, like, 
once you once you get into a certain amount of it, maybe you want to go and, you know, you want to finish it out. I understand that. And that's super valid. You know, grad school was one of the most traumatizing times of my life. And I stuck with it. Number one, because it was deeply unconscious. I did not realize how traumatizing that it was until I got out. And I do want to honor the complexity of the reasons why people stay in these um, in these stressful and toxic dynamics. I do want to honor that complexity. But at the same time, I think it's really important to understand, to honor the complexity and to be able to take steps out. And, step, and to take steps, at the same time while you're taking steps out, you're taking steps into interdependence. Those might be very small baby steps. And those are very valid. Believe me, that's what I had to do after I got out of grad school and after I got out of codependent experiences. There were baby steps. But here's one fun social experiment that I tried that that were a part of the baby steps. And it made a huge change in my life. And it's based on the principle that you may not even know what gives you the most stress until you know the opposite. If stress has been the norm in your life, you might not even know what the opposite of stress is. So you have to take time off of what you think may be the biggest stressors in your life. And then notice the feeling that you have or notice the lack of stress that you have. And at that very moment, notice that in your body. And then reprogram yourself with the affirmation that I deserve this feeling most of the time. Not just on vacation. I deserve this feeling as much. I mean, I deserve this feeling as much as humanly possible. I'm not saying that it needs to be 100%. Because there are going to be times where we come into contact with stressors in our lives. That's normal. But it's also normalized for us to be constantly stressed. So be aware of that. So that's what I'm saying. You deserve. So that's what happened to me. I had this social experiment where I realized when I started, when I left, when I left two jobs, that really, I mean, that were significant stressors in my life. And I was in between jobs and kind of looking to see how to rebuild my life. In that in-between part where I was taking baby steps to live a better life, I realized how, you know, I realized how little stress that I had. And I was like, you know what? I deserve this. I deserve this. How can I rebuild my life in such a way that does, you know, that feels like this most of the time. And that is the life that I have right now. So the question that I asked myself after I after I told myself, "Oh my god, I deserve this." is I asked myself, "What the hell are you going to do to intentionally design your life in such a way that you can have this feeling as a fundamental frequency?" Not something that is like, oh, this is my vacation vibe, right? I wanted, I wanted my old vacation vibe to become my new fundamental vibe, to become my new 
where I'm at typically, right? And that is where I'm at today. Life is not perfect, but it sure is fulfilling. And that's what I'm talking about. And I feel like I am living from a significantly more ecological perspective. Let me tell you the way that I am interpreting that. To me, living in harmony with nature is about being able to do what nature does. Living naturally, creating more space for what's missing, creating perturbation in order to renew the land, which can translate to us as letting go or decreasing things that don't serve us, like the media, codependent and transactional relationships, codependent work and school environments, institutional environments, to create space for what actually serves you back, which is interdependence. But that perturbation is the part that people don't want to go through, right? People don't want to go through that. But that's what's going to restore. The death is going to restore the rest of the land. And the interdependence is heavily based on you, is, is heavily based on not only you serving, but others serving you back in return. It sounds so simple, but a lot of people just, you know, a lot of people are just serving, 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 and they're, and nobody is serving back to them in return. And believe me, this is something... This is something that affects every aspect of your life. There are still some aspects of my life that I am still learning this. I'm still learning how to just receive in different ways. By asking for support and not feeling bad for, you know, if I am in a very intense space of need in such a way that I cannot give back, then to not feel bad about just receiving so that I will be able to give back in the future. So it's important to be able to have, you know, it's, it's important to be able to have that. It's also important to have what I was talking about before, the mutual compensation or what we can see as the symbiotic and parasymbiotic relationships and ecosystems. So I have the space to be connected deeply to what is near and dear to my heart, to podcast, to coach, to advocate for sex positivity, to have truly fulfilling relational dynamics. And all I had to do was give up toxic environments. I tell people that I got lucky in a way to be disabled. (laughs) Low key, I felt like I got lucky to be disabled. And I'm going to link the social model of disability in the description so that you understand what I mean by disabled because my body essentially basically screamed out to me only three years into the rat race and said hell nah fam there is literally no way that you're going to be able to handle this unless you want to get committed okay do you want to go crazy and I was like uh no (laughs) and the rest was history seriously I was so close, man. Seriously. I was so close to a point of no return, stress-wise. And luckily, I, you know, luckily I was privileged enough to turn around before I entered into that path. Not everybody is, and I do want to make sure to be a, you know, to be open about that. In in I'm not talking about privilege in the way that I was defining it before. I'm talking about you know, uh, privileged as far as mental health. 
um, you know, because not everybody is privileged mental health wise in order to be able to see that trajectory of like, oh, God, oh, my God, you know, like, ah, I got to get out of this or else. Right. But at the same time, turning around meant that I had to give up a lot of things that people typically have a hard time giving up if they were tied to a need for external validation, which is why it is imperative to work on healing childhood trauma and any form of relational trauma. If you were trying to get out of this stuff, you will be significantly tied to this stuff if you are not healing your relational traumas. A need for validation or cultural approval can cost people their time, their energy, and ultimately their sanity. Now this, this might be different if you're a person who is perfectly comfortable with following the status quo. Because if you feel content with that, then that's fine. If you're that person, then this podcast is probably not for you. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's bad or good or whatever. Like, that's you. I have friends who are content with the status quo. It works for them. And that's fine. I don't have an issue with that, right? So this podcast is for listeners who see that they could have a life with more health and freedom than they have now. Or if not that, then maybe people who are simply interested in these topics and how to make changes simply by being who they are now. So I hope that the unconscious sex work stuff makes sense because this has been a puzzle piece of communication that has kind of been stuck in my body that I've been seeing. And I've been like, how do I communicate this? How? And it has finally come to fruition. So... It is just a beautiful, beautiful day today. The sun is shining and I cannot wait to go back in and, you know, maybe edit this podcast today or whatever, but this sun is like really seductive. I'm just like, uh, maybe I should just stay outside and chill with the sun. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? All right. Peace out. All right. Thanks so much for listening as always, everyone. It was really funny to go back and listen and edit through that podcast because when it's real, I'm just grateful to look back on that and be like, yeah, fam, that was actually really authentic. So that's really nice. Yeah. So I've been hearing from a number of you all lately, and I'm really grateful to hear that you enjoy the podcast and that it's really making the impact that it originally had been set out to make. So that makes me feel really great, and I'm really grateful that I have been able to support you, and I'm sure that all of my wonderful guests can say the same thing, that they have been able to give you wisdom and to support you through your decolonization journey, decolonizing the mind, decolonizing the sexuality, and just, you know, tearing down societal bullshit in our lives. So next month, I believe that we will have a wonderfully deep conversation with philosopher, mental health researcher, and dear, dear queer friend, Ben Matson. So I'm really excited for him to be on this podcast. Our conversation was awesome. I already am editing it and I'm just looking through like, oh my gosh, this is going to be wildly abstract and deeply, deeply intellectually satisfying. So I hope you all have a great summer, a great winter, depending on where you are in the world. And I'll catch you all next time.